moving now. Um, so, following on from the baseline that Graham established last week about the kingdom of love, we are continuing our way into this upside-down kingdom with a focus on humility. So, straight off, can we just put to one side the irony of anybody standing here because they are the best in the world at speaking on humility. I did find this and I thought it was cute. Um, what the world needs is more geniuses with humility. There are so few of us left. <laughs> I think that, thought that was quite cute. So I'm speaking on humility because um, I put my hand up wanting to, and you'll understand why in just a moment. Close to the start of Christ's ministry, he delivered the most confronting code of behaviour to his followers, which we now know as the Sermon on the Mount. And you can read that from Matthew chapter 5 onwards. In this uh, code of behaviour, our status is no longer measured by visible signs of importance. And greatness will now be measured by such things as mercy and peacemaking and purity of heart. The standards of the new kingdom are about to be put into place. So who does Christ bless? before he begins to lay out these standards. He blesses the poor in spirit, those who mourn and those who are humble. And straight off we can see the tip of a kingdom which at this moment is led by heavily robed and heavily gowned lawyers, religious lawyers, people in the, the legal side of enforcing all of the laws that were governing the way religion looked. Matthew 5 verse 3 reads, Blessed are the meek or the humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. And it's important here to state that Jesus wasn't introducing a new virtue. This virtue is already in the Old Testament. So let's just quote two scriptures, Micah 6.8. He's shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. Uh, then we will often quote Second Chronicles 7.14, um, which is, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. Um, yet at the Sermon on the Mount moment, the long-awaited kingdom is on the cusp of its arrival, even though it's an Old Testament virtue that's carried through, we are now on the cusp of the establishment of this new kingdom. So what Christ cements in place at this pivotal time matters greatly. In this upside-down kingdom, humility has become an inescapable matter. A couple of years ago, and this is why I thought I could do a decent job, of this message, it's because I've done it before. Um, a few years ago, I was asked to speak on Philippians 2 in another church. And to prepare for that message, I listed the characteristics in that chapter that signify kingdom values in the life of the believer. So there were 17 that I read. You don't, it's not an issue right now for us to read them through. It's simply to make a point that out of Philippians 2, I found 17 virtues. And from that, the question became obvious to me, which was, is there a starting point? 
Is there an undergirding quality that will sustain all of the others? So I wrote them out and then I cross-referenced them. So obvious this is, uh, this is very subjective, it's my opinion. But my question was, what do we need to activate from that whole list in order to achieve each characteristic? And I assumed that I'd end up with a pretty good rating. The top rating would be that we were to have an attitude like Christ, which was he took on the nature of a servant. That was my top pick. But there were only 12 virtues that needed me to have an attitude like Christ. There were 14 virtues that needed me to understand and walk with humility or to be humble. And when you think about it, um, that makes so much sense uh, for humility to be the starting point. Look at what we read in Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. In other words, the undergirding characteristic of somebody who wants to be like Christ is humility because it was Christ's own undergirding characteristic. So what is humility? Paul's definition in Philippians 2, um, and it's on that list, was, is that we are to consider others better than ourselves. But I want to put to you that it's a huge topic. It's a huge topic. And we could talk about it maybe in your life groups this week. You can have some good conversations around this very, I think, complex topic of humility, this attribute. So I've just got a couple of things I want to say about it. Um, first, it's a very wrong understanding of God or about God to assume that he is eagerly awaiting opportunities to make us look silly and call it humility. It actually hurts my head when I hear people say that God humbled them. While God may, as an end point, I'm talking years, allow us to be humbled, he may even set in place circumstances for that to happen. He will never initiate anything that humiliates us. I can tell you because I know the stories behind some of the things that we've seen go on, certainly in my lifetime, of people who have been publicly um, ashamed, shall we say, publicly humiliated. I'm talking about Christian leaders. And I know the extent and the effort that went into helping those people face their stories and their issues that went on sometime, sometimes for years. Indeed, when we become so unteachable that such circumstances are put in place, it is to bring us, truthfully, to a higher place, not a lesser place, a higher place in our walk with him. It may rob us of position and title, but it will increase our sense of total devotion to the God above all gods. It is never to debase us. 
which is what happens when others humiliate us. Instead, following the example of Christ, it says, he humbled himself. Second, I want to say this. It is the very wrong idea of humility to think that it means dismissing our worth and letting others do the same. The cross won back our personal worth and our personal dignity. Third, and this is certainly a place of complexity, taking the lowly road, which is a genuine picture of humility, won't always mean bowing low. Sometimes taking the lowly road means actually standing tall and taking a stand. So there are paradoxes, which is why tackling the matter of humility can't be achieved by my standing here and giving you four points and painting them inside a nice frame and saying that's exactly it. For instance, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi that they were to be humble like Christ, took on the nature of a servant, and they were to shine like stars. They weren't to be little light bulbs wandering around looking for a PowerPoint that somebody else wasn't using in the hope that they'd look humble. They were to shine like stars. So you can see how important it is for us to understand this undergirding characteristic. On my notice board in my study, and I wish I knew where I got this from, it certainly hasn't come out of any intelligence that I might have. I think it's marvellous and I'm still trying to understand it. But it might be something worth looking at this morning. That true humility is aligning with what God says about me. That's deep. And the way that doesn't get skewed is because true dependence is aligning with what God says about himself. So take it and chew on that. I think it's providing some good markers for us. Humility is not being a nobody who has no idea who they are or why they are on the planet. So like I say, there's so much for us to consider and discuss. So what are we going to do about this? We're in a post-Easter juncture. Uh, we are starting out this uh, series on the kingdom, uh, the new kingdom, um, the upside-down kingdom. So can we put a marker in place? And Graham alluded to this a little earlier, and here is what he was alluding to. Jesus modelled an act called a foot washing. He modelled this. And we read about it in John 13, verses 6 to 10. Now, just prior to verse 6, we have the descriptor. We can see the scene. They're in the room. And he takes off his outer garment. And when I was putting this together, I thought, how much do we read into that? You know, it's taking off anything that might be a representation of who we are. We take off our work robes. We take off our kingly robes. We take off our title and position. And now he puts a towel around his waist. And we read, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not understand now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never, same word, wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash, same word, 
unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So now Peter, who's this always this glorious, totally over-the-top disciple, he's just wonderful, so glad he was one of them, um, gives hope for all of us. Um, then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Take all of me. Um, but Jesus had to bring him back to understanding what was really happening. He said, a person who's had a bath, now that's a different word. That's luo. The other words are nipto. They're different words. A person who's had a bath needs only to luo, sorry, nipto his feet because he's already clean. And we must get our heads around this. A foot washing isn't to absolve ourselves of sin. It's an act that Jesus performed and he also told us that we were to do the same. The whole body, the bath, that's that glorious moment where we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's our first freedom from sin and shame and it declares us righteous. It connects to the desert tabernacle a sacrifice of animals. Um, it's being washed in the blood. But then there's this other, nipto. This is the need for cleansing from the dust and grime of the world. And in the desert tabernacle, that was a bronze labour. And to go further into that tabernacle, there had to be the washing of extremities. We are sin-forgiven believers. Know that. But we walk every day through a very grubby world. Also, we're taking ourselves with us, which means our own issues have caked our feet with dust. So the washing of our feet is a symbolic act whereby in humility we're actually helping each other remove the dust and grime of this grubby world. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't stick the bowl in front of the disciples and said, scrub away. He got down on his knees and he washed their feet, which is why it's a group sport. We can't do it on our own. We have to come together and wash each other's feet. Make no mistake, within moments of our feet being cleaned, we are back in a world that is still grubby. But our imprint, the imprint of our feet, is now the imprint of washed feet. The dust and grime is now no longer on our feet and we're leaving a kingdom imprint when we walk. So if you've never heard about this before, uh, please know it doesn't make us a cult. It's not weird. So I've got a couple of photos to give you an idea. It is not elaborate. It's not a pedicure. It is not a day spa. It's doing something that Jesus modelled for us in verse 14. Um, went after the verses I've already read, says, and this is the Lord, words of Christ, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Um, most Pentecostal or evangelical churches, we don't major, we don't make a thing about having sacraments as some of the more older, more traditional churches have. But we would have communion, marriage, and water baptism. They're more the, our sacramental acts. This is not a sacramental act. It is something that Jesus didn't told us to do. So I see it as something that's more organic than a ritual that's just an opinion. The act of washing feet is as much an act of humility for the one doing the washing as it is for the one whose feet 
uh, being washed. I was reminded preparing this of a song that we used to sing um, back in the late 60s, early 70s, Brother, let me be your servant. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. So next Friday night, 23rd, we're having an upside down kingdom of love foot washing. And it's going to be right here. Uh, bring your own towel. Um, but if you get to the front door and you've forgotten your towel, you walk on in anyway, there are going to be some towels here. And there'll be some plastic bowls and they'll have water in them. You don't have to bring your own bowl, just bring your own towel. Um, we'll have clean water for each foot washing and the bowl will be wiped out with a disinfectant cloth after each use. Um, the door will be open at 6 o'clock and it'll close at 8. You can come here for the whole time, but truly, maybe just 20 minutes is what you'll need. You, it's, like I say, it's very, it's organic. So arrive when it suits and leave any time. Um, and I would say to you, arrive with the idea that before you wash feet, you will have your own foot washing. I think it's lovely to have the experience before you give the experience. There won't be any sermon. There won't be any singing. There'll just be in this auditorium some bowls and some towels and some feet being washed. But for now, what I want to do is tie the foot washing tightly into this whole deal around humility with a beautiful poem that I understand was written by Commissioner Ed Reed, who was a, in the Brisbane Salvation Army uh, in the 80s. It's called The Basin and the Towel. The basin and the towel, and Jesus on his knees, what graciousness is here, what holy mysteries, and how needs of mine assail me when I watch the master and his men. Such love he bore his own, all selfless, all selfless to the end, to take the servant's part over dusty feet, to bend and girded with humility, he kneels to minister to me. His lowliness is might, his meekness, majesty. His holy hands can touch a traitor lovingly. Let pride be broken when it sees that kingly love upon its knees. The basin brims with grace. As Jesus comes again, he holds the towel to me to serve men in his name, to share such Christly ministries. I can but fall upon my knees. Please take communion in your hands. The band is to come now as we round this off with a remembrance of what happened straight after that foot washing. He said, this is what you will do. You will remember me. My body's going to be broken and my blood is going to be shed and you will remember. And every time we take communion in whatever form, we are saying, we've not forgotten. We've not forgotten. Lord, you humbled yourself. And there wouldn't be one of us who doesn't aspire to say we also choose to humble ourselves. We aspire to that. But, oh God, we... We need your mercy. Blessed are those who mourn. 
Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Oh God, let us own those feelings that we have. You don't humiliate us. You invite us into a certain way of living. Oh God, I pray that you will help us and we old ones help us model to younger ones what it is to be humble of heart but to stand tall and take our place. Help us to model what it looks like to not be full of our own importance but to recognise the important role that you've given us wherever that may be, wherever that positions us. Lord, as we Take this bread and drink this wine. Ground us in the truth of who you are and how you want us, your people, to walk through the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Just take communion as you're ready while we worship. In the crushing you make it in the soil I surrender you break
Jesus, pray. 